from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Devon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 8th. Today, an uncertain future for laid-off autoworkers. Why terrorists in the U.S. are rarely charged with actual terrorism and a long-awaited superhero. You know, watching the news and stuff and hearing them say, you know, how sad it is that GM don't care for their employees. It's true. It's a business. We're numbers. It doesn't matter. All the bags and pleads for this community. It's not going to make a difference. Last November, General Motors announced that it would cut 15% of its workers and shut down five plants in North America, including one in Lordstown, Ohio. It's a big company. They don't care. I, unfortunately, they don't care. Terra Gress is one of about 4,500 workers that have been laid off from that plant in Ohio in the past two years. 1,500 of those workers were laid off after the plant closed this week. I wouldn't say this is 100% a company town, but let's say it's 80% a company town. Heather Long covers economics for The Post, and she spent some time in Lordstown. And she says that the reason why the town's entire GM plant is closing all comes down to one car. They made a car called the Chevy Cruze. It's very sweet. It literally ticked all the boxes. Yeah. That is a small sedan, you know, markets for kind of fifteen to $20,000. And that was super popular right after the Great Recession. The latest Chevy Cruze is much more than a cheap domestic. People were short on money. Gas was expensive. They were looking for that cheap, economical, gas-efficient option. And the Cruze was a pretty darn good car for that. It got pretty good ratings. But after the recession, a lot of people went back to buying less cost-efficient cars like SUVs and trucks. Basically, the United States auto industry thinks they're not making enough money on small sedans, and they're all getting out of it. Even though the economy is doing better, the manufacturing sector hasn't improved equally across the country. In a quarter of metropolitan areas, including in Lordstown, it's on a steady decline. And that means that there aren't many options left for auto workers like Tara. They can try to get another job in town, usually for less pay. Or if you worked in the GM factory, not for a supplier, you have the possibility to transfer. Or the third thing is retrain. I plan on transferring. This is my third plant. I came from Mansfield. They shut that plant down. Tara is 37 years old, and she's worked at GM for 19 years. Like 700 other workers at the plant, she says that she's going to try to stick with the car company. But 30% of the people laid off at the Lordstown GM plant have chosen a different option, the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program. It's a federal grant that covers two years' worth of classes and provides a weekly stipend. On paper, it's a good opportunity. And that's what everybody in Washington, D.C., or my friends on Wall Street are always like, what's wrong with these people? They just need to retrain. Well, that sounds really easy until you're 45 or 55 and you haven't been in a classroom in years and you've been working this factory and suddenly you got to go back to school. Heather spent time with some of the people who chose to retrain. The one that sticks in my mind is a 55-year-old named Mike Binock. And he's a really smart guy. He got a college degree in the early 1980s. I mean, he can tell you just about any stat about the Chevy Cruze. 
But at 58, when he was laid off last summer, he followed the state's advice. He took the retraining money, the grant. He enrolled to become a CNC machinist, which is an advanced manufacturing job where it's sort of like being able to 3D print something. You can sort of set up the machine and then get it to actually make parts and make cool stuff like a 3D printer. And, you know, he said, I lasted one week. He sat down. The professor says, okay, let's get going. Fire up your computer and put in the flash drive. And he said, I didn't even know what a flash drive was. And I had to turn to the person next to me and say, what's a flash drive? You know, that's how far behind he was. You know, again, he just didn't have the computer skills. For other people, many of the folks at that plant had maybe just a high school degree or some of them didn't even graduate from high school. And so, again, they they haven't done math at a, at a pretty high level in years. And, you know, you, you need that even if you're going to go try to retrain to be a dental assistant or and certainly an RN nurse degree. So even though it sounds like in this case the state of Ohio had set up grants for helping people to retrain. And and there are other federal programs that are are trying to get people from no longer existing manufacturing jobs into different kinds of jobs, that those programs aren't helping in the way that they were intended to. That's right. These GM workers here in Lordstown, Ohio, had what we call the Cadillac retraining offer. They received money from the federal government and the state government for a fully paid two years of classes at pretty much any program they chose. Now, you can't go do it for art class, but you know any program that would have been leading to some sort of job. So welding, CNC machinists, nursing, dental assistant, trucking. And on top of that, they would get paid to go to school. They would receive basically unemployment insurance or a little bit around, so a couple hundred dollars a week, as long as they continued to be enrolled full time and showed up to class. You can't get a better deal than that for retraining in this country. Even with that kind of an offer on the table, only 30% enrolled and even fewer have graduated. And what really sticks with me and my big takeaway, if somebody is older or younger than 45, you know, the people I met who were in their 20s and 30s who were laid off, you know, GM's going to be a footnote in their life story. They were like, sure, I'll go retrain or I'll move to another state. Um, you know, a lot of times they don't have family, don't have mortgage. You know, they're a little younger, more ready to try. But the ones who were over 45, you know, who are in their 50s, in their 60s, it's harder to get rehired. Why does somebody want to hire you versus the 20-year-old? You haven't been in that classroom for a while, so it's hard to retrain. You've got a mortgage. You've got kids or, or elderly parents you're taking care of. You've got roots, deep roots in some place. And it's just so much harder for those people over 45. And this is true not just in Lordstown, but in other places across the country. It, it is in, in all the places that I've seen. And I've traveled a lot through Pennsylvania. It's my home state, through Michigan, through Wisconsin, uh, through uh, Kentucky. So, yes, I'm confident enough to say, yeah, that this is a huge factor. What's going to happen to these people who don't end up being successful at retraining? A lot of these people are going to end up taking what jobs are available. And our story opens with Scott Meza Peso, great Italian-American heritage. And at the moment, he has gone from working at Magna, one of the big GM suppliers that made making seats. He had worked his way up to the top wage of $22 an hour with great benefits there. Today, he works part-time at a pizzeria. Uh, he loves the people, uh, but you know, eleven dollars an hour with no benefits part time is what he's on right now. Uh, the handful of jobs he's been called back for have been ten, eleven, twelve dollar an hour jobs. 
For these workers who you talk to about this experience, where do they stand politically? This county for years, called Trumbull County in Ohio, has voted Democrat. You know, this is your union town that supported Democrats since Nixon. And in 2016, it swung to Trump. Does that mean every person voted for Trump? No. Does that mean every person blames the president for this? But the president understood this. He showed up early in his presidency in the first few months. He made a trip, one of his rally trips, to Youngstown, Ohio, which is really close to where this Lordstown is. And he told the people there, Don't sell your house. Don't sell your house. Do not sell it. We're going to get those values up. We're going to get those jobs coming back. And we're going to fill up those factories or rip them down and build brand new ones. So it's going to happen. And this all seems kind of surprising and, and counterintuitive because I feel like all we're hearing right now is that the economy is doing so well and that this is actually a really good time to be doing business in America. And yet for the people in these particular manufacturing jobs, that's not the case. The best way to describe it is this is a good economy, probably the best we've seen since 2000, maybe longer. But there are pockets of pain. We've actually added a decent number of manufacturing jobs back. Last year was the best year for manufacturing growth since 1997. 75% of metro areas in the country have been adding manufacturing jobs since the Great Recession. A quarter have been losing. They've still been shedding jobs. So guess what's in that pocket of pain? Eastern Ohio, where this Youngstown, Lordstown area is, western Pennsylvania, sort of north of Pittsburgh, upstate New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, these types of sort of older Rust Belt communities. Many of them have not seen that pickup in manufacturing jobs. So maybe the issue isn't that America is no longer a place for manufacturing, but that these towns... These parts of the Rust Belt, they're no longer a place for manufacturing. I think that's, that's pretty true. Can they become and reinvent themselves for advanced manufacturing? That's what they would like. They would like to be the new 3D printing hub. But again, the companies are weighing, could, should they stay in Ohio where there's a strong union presence, or should they go to the Carolinas where there isn't much union presence? Or should they you know, stay in these areas and invest tens of millions of dollars in retooling? Or should they just build a new factory somewhere else? So is it fair? Is it right? Is it just? Probably not. But that's the kind of decisions that are in the thinking that's going on and why we're seeing growth in manufacturing in a lot of parts of the South. And then bizarrely, and surprisingly to me, in the West Coast, because that's where more of that tech, advanced manufacturing, skilled labor is perceived to be. Thank you so much, Heather. Thank you. Heather Long covers economics for The Post. On Friday, the Labor Department announced that the U.S. economy added 20,000 jobs in February, which is significantly less than the 180,000 new jobs that some economists anticipated. Heather said that these lackluster numbers may signal a cooling-off period in job growth. It's so stark that the fact that they're saying in the court filing the defendant is a domestic terrorist, mm -hmm. and yet they're not charging him with terrorism. Right. 
Last month, federal officials arrested U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant and self-proclaimed white nationalist Christopher P. Hassan. They uncovered a massive stockpile of weapons in his home. The details were chilling. He had created target lists of TV journalists and of politicians that he apparently wanted to attack. He kept extensive notes on how much violence he wanted to inflict and how he wanted to do it. He was inspired by a very violent Norwegian man who in 2011 murdered dozens and dozens of people in in an awful attack that was basically done for white nationalist reasons. And they say, and they say Lieutenant Hassan is himself a white nationalist and who believes in that worldview. Given all of this, it might be surprising that Lieutenant Hassan was actually charged with gun and drug offenses, not plotting a terrorist attack. My name is Devlin Barrett. I cover national security and law enforcement for The Washington Post. Devlin has been reporting on the surprising ways that terrorism charges are applied and why terrorism is a charge that we're seeing less and less in general. One of the quirks of federal criminal law is that there are a number of terrorism charges that you can bring against someone who is inspired by an overseas terror group, say al-Qaeda or Islamic State, those sorts of groups. If you act in a way inspired by them, there are a lot of things you can be charged with. When it comes to what they like to call domestic terrorism or right-wing terrorism, there's actually a smaller and different set of charges that usually apply, and those are found in what people generally refer to as hate crimes. If you are engaged in hate crimes and planning violence of some kind, you can be charged with that. But those aren't terrorism statutes. Devlin says that the reason for that distinction has to do with the history of where those laws came from. The laws that address hate crimes actually came out of the civil rights movement. The problem that the FBI confronted, if you think back to, if you remember the movie Mississippi Burning, that case where three civil rights workers were murdered and local police, local authorities didn't want to do anything about it. They didn't have any interest, frankly, in investigating those cases very much. So there became a series of laws that were built up around the civil rights statutes and so Those federal laws and those federal investigations grew out of a very particular problem, which was essentially violence to defend segregation that local officials were not going to investigate and prosecute or not reliably investigate and prosecute. So the FBI essentially and the Justice Department took a a lead role in saying, "Okay, fine, if we cannot trust the locals to investigate these cases fairly and bring killers to justice, we will do that. And so that's where that body of law comes in. But that doesn't really get at, you know, some of the behavior you see in the 70s, for example, when people start hijacking planes and and killing passengers on, on cruise ships, for example, for various international terror groups. So a different set of laws is basically put on the books to say, okay, if you are acting on behalf of a group that is a designated terrorist organization by the State Department, that is a federal crime and that is terrorism and we will pursue and punish that. Essentially, these are two different approaches to what seemed at the time like two totally unrelated problems. But think about what the problem in America is now. A lot of this violence is a person buying a gun and walking into a building and shooting everyone he sees. So, for example, what is the moral distinction you can make between the Pulse nightclub shooting, a horrific event by any measure, 
and the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, a horrific event by any measure. I think a lot of people who want to change the law look at it and say, these are fundamentally the similar awful act. We should be, the law should treat them the same. But the truth is the law doesn't. I think this disparity of charges is really frustrating for people to see because what it ends up being is that if someone is Muslim, if someone is brown, that they get charged with terrorism. But then when you have right-wing extremists, white nationalists who are planning terror attacks or execute terror attacks, it's not deemed terrorism. And it, it seems like there's a real disparity there. Right. And a lot of the debate in the last, let's say, year has been about are we are we giving in some way extremist right-wing violent people a pass by not calling them terrorists? If you walk into a synagogue and shoot a bunch of people, how is that not terrorism compared to if you rent a truck and mow down a bunch of people on, on the west side of Manhattan? That is called terrorism. I think that an average regular citizen can look at that and say, I don't understand the distinction you're drawing here. And the truth is a little complicated. The truth is that there is a distinction in the law in how these crimes were, were written up in the first instance. But there's also in some ways less of a distinction because when we were able to look at internal FBI data, we actually saw a set of numbers that suggests these two things are treated more similarly than you would think. But that still doesn't, that still doesn't address the underlying question of should they just be treated the same? And that's a question for, frankly, Congress to decide if they want to change the law. What do you mean that those two things are being treated as the same? So as we've been having this debate about domestic terrorism versus Islamic international terrorism, one of the criticisms that's been made of the Justice Department is that, you know, you charge Islamic international terrorists with terrorism. You charge white racist terrorists with hate crimes or gun charges. That's not fair. And what we found when we got the numbers is that, in fact, terrorists of both kinds are, are very rarely charged with terrorism offenses at all. So, for example, in uh, the 2017 budget year, the FBI was part of about 110 arrests of people who were part of international Islamic-inspired terrorism cases. Yet, of those 110, only 30 were charged with actual terrorism crimes. So that means 80 of those folks, the, the large majority of those folks, were never facing terrorism charges at all. They were charged with gun crimes or drug crimes or fraud crimes or immigration crimes. And in the following year, 2018, the disparity was even more clear because that year there were 100 people charged, arrested, and of those, only nine uh, faced actual terrorism uh, charges. And so what you see is, what the FBI is doing on a day-to-day -day basis with terrorism cases is they're processing, they're handling, they're investigating and arresting a whole group of people that they internally view as terrorists, but they are not publicly labeling terror suspects. Devlin says that part of that has to do with the fact that sometimes it's easier to prosecute a gun charge or a drug charge than a terrorism charge. And if you're law enforcement and you think that somebody is dangerous and you just need to get them off the streets before they hurt someone, going after those lesser charges might make sense. But part of it also might be political. So if there's a sense that there's something wrong with our legal definition of terrorism, is there a movement to actually change that? There is. Uh, some current and former law enforcement officials have been begun arguing in the last six months to a year that it is time to change the law, that for the purposes of 
sending a message to the public and, frankly, to the bad guys as well that killing innocent people is wrong no matter what cause you claim to be doing it for. You're just doing something horribly wrong and we should call both of those, whatever your cause, we should call it terrorism. And that effort is underway. I think it's going to be a heavy lift to get Congress to embrace that because I think there's some political ramifications of doing that. But I do think it's a, it's a very interesting and, and intense debate even among law enforcement. What would be the political ramifications of, of broadening this definition of terrorism? So one of the reasons why there is not a domestic terrorism charge in the federal code like there is, for example, material support for ISIS. Material support for ISIS is a thing you can charge someone with and the federal criminal code is constructed. If you were to make a material support charge for a domestic terror group, you would then have to label, the government would then have to label X groups as terrorism groups. So the, the, the obvious ones to think of right out of the gate would be, well, okay, do we do that for the Ku Klux Klan? Do we do that for, you know, white Aryan? Uh, there, there's a bunch of groups that I think would be pretty high in the list of candidates. And I think the obvious, the, the answer would be easy for a lot of politicians on some of those groups. But what you would probably get very quickly is some pretty intense debates about other groups that, for example, maybe the Southern Poverty Law Center believes should be included on the list of a terrorist organizations, but some far-right political nonviolent entity or group of people thinks should not be included. And is that somehow now – are we now somehow in First Amendment area? So there's – a lot of a, of a gray area that people would be wary of wading into. I think that the challenge that a lot of people have noted to me, and this is just talking to law enforcement people, the challenge a lot of folks noted to me is that if you pass such a law, you would create a gray area. In their minds, they think there would be a lot of fights over that gray area. So if the legal standards don't change, do you expect that we'll be seeing kind of official terrorism charges less and less frequently? I think part of what you're seeing now is that federal officials are more inclined to publicly call someone, for example, the Coast Guard lieutenant, a domestic terrorist, even though they're not charging them as a terrorist. I don't think it's a coincidence that in, in this suspect's, this person's court hearing uh, last week, the prosecutors called him a terrorist. And in their court filings, they called him a terrorist. I think they're doing that because they're trying to make a point that there is an even-handed administration of this. There is an even-handed application of this to the suspects they're dealing with. But I think, frankly, one of the things they're struggling with internally is that if you don't charge people with terrorism, the, the wider public is going to have much less information about how you're doing these cases and how you're proceeding. So I do think there is a push now in the Justice Department to call a terrorist a terrorist even when they are not charged with terrorism. Devlin Barrett covers national security and law enforcement for The Post. And now, one more thing. Captain Marvel, the first female-led superhero movie from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. To be clear, there have definitely been female superhero films before. This is graphics reporter Shelley Tan, who spends a lot of time thinking about pop culture. Who is she? 
you know, I think I recognize the costume. There was Supergirl a couple decades ago. Deep Sage jumps around like a cat. What should we call her? There was Catwoman, and of course, most recently, there was Wonder Woman. I used to want to save the world. Which did really well in the box office. But all of those properties are DC Comics properties. Uh, Captain Marvel, on the other hand, is the first one to come out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm not going to fight your war. I'm going to end it. So I am a very avid comics reader. I originally got started, let's see, when I was seven years old or so. And that was mainly just because my parents would drop me off in Barnes & Nobles when I was a kid and just let me sit in the corner for two hours, and I found the comic book corner, and I never quite left. I really love reading and otherwise consuming media that tells either my story or the stories of people that don't commonly get their stories told. And stuff like that is the reason why I got into reading Captain Marvel. And I think what's really exciting for me for Captain Marvel is that she's an example of a female superhero that really grew into what she is now. She debuted as a love interest. She became a superhero called Miss Marvel for a while, but that unfortunately had some really epic lows involving tropes for female characters. And it took her years to finally become Captain Marvel as we know her today. And so to kind of sum up that overall evolution, 50 years after her debut as a love interest, Carol Danvers is now the most powerful Marvel superhero in their film universe. A race of noble warriors. Heroes. Noble warrior heroes. I think her movie is going to have an impact on the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, she is the first solo uh, female superhero to have her own film here. Um, and that matters a lot, considering how big of a player Marvel now is in the movie industry. Shelley Tan is a graphics reporter for The Post. Captain Marvel is officially out on Friday. That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalie Kasika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 